Self-driving cars aren't just here, they're everywhere. They're still in testing, sure, but this technology is on its way. It's just a matter of when and where it'll land first. And when that happens, robot cars will likely change society as we know it, just as the personal automobile did a century ago. Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Are you waiting for the day when your car can drive you to visit mom on the holidays? And you can kick back and read a book or close your eyes and listen to your favorite podcast? Well, it's all about transportation today on the Got Science Podcast. And stick around after the episode for This Week in Science History with Katie Love. Have you ever found yourself stuck in your boring old wheels-on-the-ground car in a traffic jam, wondering, where are the flying cars and hoverboards I was promised by the TV shows and movies of my childhood? Maybe it's just me, but I do wonder a lot about the future of transportation, especially as electric vehicles gain more traction among people buying cars, and as big cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco work to electrify their fleet of public buses within the next few years. We seem to be on the brink of some kind of upheaval in the way we get around and the way we think about driving and commuting. Will we recognize our transportation landscape in 10 years? Joining the show today to talk about what's ahead in transportation is Dr. Daniel Sperling. Dan is Professor of Civil Engineering and Environmental Studies and Policy and founding director of the Institute of Transportation Studies at the University of California, Davis. He's served on the California Air Resources Board since 2007, and he's written 12 books on transportation. Our correspondent, Abby Figueroa, spoke with Dan about electric cars, driverless cars, driverless electric cars, and how after 50 years of the same old cars and highways, we might start seeing system-level innovation faster than we're prepared for. Abby, over to you. Thanks, Colleen. Hey, Dan, welcome to Got Science, the UCS podcast. My pleasure to join you. So today we're going to be talking about transportation here in Davis, California, a place that a lot of people like to come and think about transportation like they do here at the Institute um, at UC Davis, where I'm interviewing you. Um, So you have a book that you wrote recently, Three Revolutions where you talk about what needs to happen next in transportation. Let's talk about those three revolutions. Let's start with the first one, electric vehicles. What's going on with electric vehicles these days? Well, electric vehicles is a fascinating topic that I've spent many years on. And now, uh, as was mentioned earlier, I'm a board member for the California Air Resources Board. So the California is fighting with the Trump administration over electric vehicle rules. But electric vehicles are here to not only here to stay, they're going to dominate. There's almost no question about it. Every car company in the world has made a major investment. They've got the technology, they've got the supply chains. They're really just waiting for policy to really push them and consumers to start buying them. But they're ready to go and they've got the technology. So it's really a question of how intent are we as a society in making it happen. Um, Certainly in California, we're really committed and we're going to see massive uh, introduction of electric vehicles in the coming years. 
the automotive leaders almost all agree it's coming within two, three, four years, we're going to see a big jump. And will we make it to 5 million electric vehicles by 2030 in California, which is the goal here? That's the plan. So what will happen is the Air Resources Board, which I'm a board member for, we're going to be extending the zero emission vehicle mandate. Right now, it only goes till 2025. We're going to extend it to 2030. And we haven't come up with a number for 2030, but the governor said he wants 5 million cars. So it'll be something like that. So electric vehicles is the first revolution that needs to happen in transportation so that we can start reaping the benefits of um, reduced carbon emissions and better safety and less pollution. The second revolution you talk about in your book is automation, self-driving cars. Tell us a little bit about what's going on in that world right now. How close are we to self-driving cars becoming a reality? Well, automation also is inevitable. It's definitely going to happen. There's almost no question. In this case, not just the automotive industry, but many other related companies, all the high-tech software companies, Silicon Valley companies, Google, are all making huge investments. So automation is definitely going to happen. In fact, our cars already are partly automated today. You can get some cars that will drive themselves on freeways right now, the Tesla, Audi, Cadillac, Mercedes. Uh, and so they're, they're just adding in t- more and more technology. We have adaptive cruise control, which means the car automatically adjusts its speed, it slows down or accelerates depending on how fast the car is in front of it. And then you have lane keeping assistance that helps with the steering. So we're basically, a lot of the technology is there. We're 90% there. But the last few percent are are the hard part. The interesting part about automation is that in contrast with electric vehicles, with electric vehicles, it's policy pulling it into the market. In, with automated vehicles, it's, a, it's policy slowing it down, and mostly for safety reasons. I just visited a couple of the automated vehicle companies in San Francisco last week. And they're like General Motors, they're they have a factory, they're gearing up to start selling, to start manufacturing automated vehicles in the next couple of years. Uh, Dime, uh, Waymo, the Google company just is just announced they're buying uh, 60,000 vehicles from Fiat Chrysler. So they're agitating to move ahead. The first application is going to be almost for sure the Uber and Lyft type of cars, because there the automation makes so much sense. They're willing to pay a lot for it because right now, 75% of their cost is the driver. So all they do is they move the technology in and drive around and they save huge amounts of money. So they're just itching to get those that technology. The car companies are racing forward with the technology and the legislators and the cities are racing to try to keep up right with the policies. And I think with reason, people are excited and some folks are feeling more cautious and wary of it all. But what's the future look, looking like once we have these this automation, these self-driving cars on the roads? How does that change our commute and the way we get around our communities? Well, the automated vehicles could play out in two different ways. They could be just basically superimposed on our current transportation system. In other words, 
we now go out and we buy our own car. So now we would just go out and buy our own automated car. And so it would be the same, except it would be automated. If that were the case, that is what leads to what we sometimes call the hell scenario. The dream or the nightmare, you called it in your book. In my book, I call it the nightmare scenario. And that's because if you have an automated car, you can spend time in that car doing anything you want. You can eat, sleep, tweet, text. It can be your office. It can be your hotel room. And so you're going to be much more willing to take long trips because you don't mind so much being in the car. And it won't be just being in the car more. Cars will be empty part of the time. You go to a meeting, you don't know quite when you're going to get out. You don't want to pay for parking. You just have the car circle around the block. You know, we, we refer to uh, single occupant vehicles. We're going to have zero occupant vehicles. No, zombie cars. That, that would be the nightmare scenario. That's that's worse than the parking lots full of cars. It's yeah. just cars roaming on the road with no one in them. So the other way it can play out, and that's what I call it, the heaven scenario, the dream scenario, is that these vehicles are used mostly or even totally as a uh, serve as a mobility service, as a pooling service. Meaning, you take Lyft Line or Uber Pool and some other microtransit companies like Via or Chariot and you automate it and now you get rid of your cars you don't own cars anymore and you just hit that button car come takes you where you want to go is there someone in the car with us there's no one in the car and the cost is really cheap mm. because you don't have the driver the automation won't cost Rick that much and the car will get really cheap because it's being used so efficiently Right now, our cars, they sit 95% of the time on average. Wow. Now we're going to use it 12 hours, 15 hours, 18 hours Much more efficient. Much more efficient. So we won't need as many. And because people are going to pool in it, you're going to have multiple people in these cars. And these cars might not be cars like we know them now. They could get a little bigger, be more like a van, small vans. you know, probably there'll be a differentiation of service. Some people will want a, a more exclusive service and pay more. But the point of this is that if we do have this pooling, that is by far the best strategy we can imagine to create a sustainable transportation system. Because it's cheaper, it requires less road space, less parking space, it provides more accessibility to more people, low income, physically disadvantaged dis- disabled now you know unless you're a you know in a wheelchair that you can use these vehicles easily so now you've created a system that economically environmentally and socially is far better than what we have now with pooling so the challenge is are people going to pool well you know the history recent history is People don't like to carpool. <laughs> well, this is a good way of getting into the third revolution, which was sharing and pooling. And you're right. Um, the numbers, I was looking at your recent presentation, the numbers are down, actually, for carpooling. Um, we've had these high occupancy lanes on the highways, but folks aren't using them as much. So how can these three revolutions work together if people aren't doing one of them. Well, we can have the electric vehicle revolution and that'll be good. that would be good. But the automation is going to happen. 
So it's really a question, is the automation going to happen with pooling or without it? And so for it to happen with pooling, almost for sure we're going to need policy. Policy that incentivizes pooling, disincentivizes single occupant and zero occupant vehicles. Mm -hmm. And there's many, many ways to do that. You know, we have a team here at UC Davis. We're, de we're developing all of these policies. In fact, in the book, on the end of each chapter is a list of policies. So we're taking those and refining them some more. We're spending a lot of time talking to local governments. I've, I've done 35 talks in the last four months. And a lot of it talking to mayors and city councils and, and local leaders. They need at the local government level to be not just supporters of pooling, they've got to be champions of it. And they got to do it now. You have to pass the policies that are going to make this happen so that we can change our behaviors. Exactly. We need help. <laughs> so of the three revolutions, electrification, automation slash self-driving, and pooling, which one or which combination of those three are the ones that are the ones that can have the best impact on our carbon emissions, the best positive climate impact? Well, the, if we had all electric vehicles, that would probably be the best for just reducing greenhouse gases. Because there you can get, if as we decarbonize our electricity system, we're talking about an 80, 90 percent reduction in greenhouse gases. And transportation is the leading cause of yeah. or source of emissions right now. Yeah. So in California, huge. it's over 40 percent of the total, and nationally, it's over 30 percent. That's right. So electric vehicles, if you just looked at it carbon, then electric vehicles is is necessary. It's kind of like a given. You have to do that. The rest of this, the pooling combined with the automation, can help us reduce vehicle use. So then we can knock off another 20, 30, 40, 50%. So electrification makes cars cleaner and automation and pooling takes cars off the road. Yes. So those two things combined will help our carbon emissions. Yeah, maybe a better way of saying it is it reduces vehicle miles traveled. It reduces vehicle use. So we'll have less vehicles around because there's more people in each vehicle. And they're being more efficient. The cars aren't parked 95% of the time. Exactly. Got it. So all the three revolutions really are interconnected yeah. if we are to get to this dream scenario. Yes. back in a minute with the second half of our interview. Dot Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at dotsciencepodcast.org. We're starting a conversation about self-driving cars on our blog. Check it out at blog.ucsusa.org slash self-driving cars. Now let's get back to the interview. So how far in the future are we talking about? This, uh, I was reading something about how yeah, the automotive leaders are saying 2020, 2022, 2025, they're going to have these models on the road. Is it really that soon that we can see these changes? There will be, in a few years, there will be some vehicles that are automated, electric, and pool, and offering the pooling service, almost for sure, but in a very limited way. The first application of these vehicles will be in use by Uber or Lyft or companies like that, or the car companies themselves. All the car companies are trying to figure out how do they switch from being 
a vehicle manufacturer to being a service provider because they think they can make a lot more money on service. And besides, they're not going to sell as many vehicles, so they better do something different. And so they're all trying to figure out how do they provide these services in what way. So they're going to start out testing this out in the, in the very near future. And the way they're going to start it out is they're going to essentially geofence an area, which means that they're going to identify an area and then they're going to map the hell out of that. You know, every curb, every fire hydrant, every sign. And so that these vehicles know everything in that area. And if you order, if you're in that area and you have a destination that's also within that area, they'll send you this car. That's almost for sure how this is going to roll out in the near term. And then over time, they'll gradually expand that area, that geofenced area to be larger and larger space. So then you can commute, you know, for longer distances between cities and things like that. How fast will that happen? How fast and is that the ideal way to roll this out? It is. It is a good way. It makes good sense. So you can start it like we're in California here, downtown Sacramento or Walnut Creek. Um, even there's a company that's going to roll it out in San Francisco within two or three years, they say. So it makes sense because you want it to be safe. So they need to make sure everything is safe, but they need to be able to attract enough people. If you have it out in the middle of the boondocks, you know, you're not going to get any riders and you're not really going to learn much either. You need to be near people, <laughs> bicyclists, because these cars have to learn how to behave safely. Mm-hmm. Are there other places in the country outside of California where they're, that are primed for this type of, these, these revolutions to happen? Well, there's, they're primed for parts of it. So Arizona has been very hospitable to automated vehicles. Uh, Pittsburgh also. Um, Detroit, of course, they have all the companies located there. But I think the com- these, the, they're going to look for re- areas where the local governments are going to be ho- hospitable <laughs> towards them. And I hope they'll also look at places where local governments will favor the pooling type services. So that means that they will provide an incentive for the pooling and a disincentive for single occupant or zero, zero occupant. Let's be a little bit more specific about that. Like what does someone like me or listeners need to ask their local city planners and government to do to be doing? Like what are mm-hmm. these incentives for? So, so right now, almost everywhere, they tax the service by ride. So if you take Uber Pool or Lyft Line, they charge the same fee per passenger as Uber X. Which would be when it's just you and the driver, a single passenger. Right. Uber X is like with a single passenger. So there's a difference between you know me calling a Lyft just me to get in the car and be driven somewhere versus me calling a Lyft where there's multiple passengers going different places. Right. So we're talking about the latter. Right. So for the people that haven't used this service yet, you get on the app, you get it, you can press a button that you want to be the only passenger. And for Uber, that's called Uber X. Or you press another button that says you want to be in a pool service. And if it's a pool service, it's going to stop and pick some others up along the way. And I mean, if enough people are doing it, the pooling actually works very efficiently because you would just pick up people along your route. You would take only a very minor deviation because there's so many people using it. And, and I think it'll soon be 
very effective even in suburban areas as well. And it won't be just dense cities like San Francisco. So what you need to tell the local mayor and city council is they should change those pricing, those taxes or fees that they charge so that for a vehicle offering a pooling service, there's little or no fee. But if they off, but that if they do a single passenger service, they pay a large fee. And it's not just in the city, like at airports. I mean, this would solve a lot of airport problems because mm-hmm. Lyft and Uber have created congestion at the airports. And, and I mean, the rental car companies are suffering, the taxis are suffering because it really is fundamentally a, you know, a superior service. But what they should do is at the airport, they should do the same thing in terms of the pricing, but they can also do it with curb space. They say, okay, we're going to create a lot of curb space for the pooled cars and vans. So airport cities, first step is to create curb space for the pooling and, and much less so for single passenger. So for pooling, one thing we can do is one, use these pooling services now yeah. to create the demand. And two, ask our local city governments, county governments to be incentivizing um, the pooled services versus the uh, not pooled services. With electrification, one thing we could do is purchase an electric car as our next vehicle. Um, What else can people, individuals like me, like our listeners do to help these revolutions come along? Well, I think... Especially in the electrification or the automation. Well, you know, the the big picture here is that, yes, you can just buy an electric car or um, just buy an electric car and use it. But I think big picture here is we're trying to reduce ownership of cars. And it it sounds kind of un-American when you say that, but it really is just the opposite. What we're doing is creating choice and we're making it better for people. I mean, wouldn't you rather have a chauffeur and the chauffeur is either a human or a robot. I mean, most of us would rather be driven. Do we like to drive? Some people do, but most do not. So what we need to do is create choice. We've created in the United States this car-centric cities, car-centric lifestyles, car-centric transportation system. And now if we do anything, if we raise the gas tax, like in California, we raise the gas tax 12 cents and people are up in arms Partly it's a political issue, but partly it's just that people feel like they're being punished, that they have no option. They've got to buy a car. They've got it. That's the only way to get to work. I have to get to work somehow. I have to get to school somehow. And there's no alternatives. The bus takes four hours to get across town. Exactly. Mm -hmm. There's no alternative. So the first thing, what this revolutions are really about is creating choice. And okay, you know, it's like Uber and Lyft were a really good start. They've opened up the door and we should really be appreciative of that because they've made it possible now to bring in this whole new set of services that really are so much better for us as individuals as well as us as a society. And it opens up the possibility of these micro transit services, these Uber pool, all these pooling services. And so we need to create the choice then we can do the policies that otherwise would be seen as as punishment because now they don't have choice. But if you have choice, okay, if there's a higher fee or tax on single occupant driving, then but, you I, know, but I choose choose pulling. Yes, the and choice, save money. Is important. And so you have choice. 
right now, you know, we just have almost no one has real choices. Yeah, we, we have to get in our cars to get to where we need to go. Yep. Yeah. Well, this is a very interesting time to be alive. And I, these revolutions are going to be as profound as, you know, when rail and streetcars and uh, airplanes came onto the scene. Yeah, let me add, that's exactly right. And if you think about it, so I've been working in this field, you know, several decades. Almost no innovation, no system level innovation in transportation in half a century. Mm. And now all of a sudden we're seeing these big changes. And so it really is, it's exciting as a researcher, it's exciting as a policy person, it's exciting as a business person, it's exciting. A driver and a writer. <laughs> driver and writer. It's exciting for all of us. But we want to make sure we channel that excitement <laughs> into the, towards the social good, the public interest. And that is the challenge before us now. And we've got to get, before automation becomes widespread, we've got to set up the policies and the processes for pooling. So that's why I tell these mayors, I said, you can't be just supportive of Uber pool and Lyft line and microtransit. You've got to be a champion of it and create those policies so that when automation comes along, which is really going to be transformational. And really soon. And it's good, and it could be fairly soon. We're well positioned to, you know, to take advantage of it in a good way. Well, thank you for explaining all that to us. And it's, it's exciting. It's exciting to talk to you. And I, I'm really glad to hear about all of these changes that are happening and that are coming. So one last personal question for you. How do you get around? Because I'm the, on the Air Resources Board, where we're the ones adopting a zero emission vehicle mandate for everyone else. My wife told me I've got to walk the talk. So I bought a hydrogen fuel cell car, nice. but I hardly ever use it. And that's because my favorite vehicle is another zero emission vehicle, my bicycle. I love it. I ride to work every day. It's really made a, a big difference. And I, I, car, I van pooled and drove a car for 30 years. So I'm very excited. You're in the right city then. You're in a very bike-friendly city to be yes. <laughs> using that bicycle. Well, thank you, Dan, so much for talking to me. And I um, do look forward to following your work and these um, changes to come. I'll be keeping tabs on all this stuff. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, back to you, Colleen. Thanks, Abby. And now it's time for This Week in Science History with Katie Love. This week in science history, we're going back to July 12, 1957, when then U.S. Surgeon General Leroy Burney issued a report on the connection between smoking and lung cancer. With this report, Surgeon General Burney became the first government official to publicly acknowledge the connection, saying, quote, It is clear that there is an increasing and consistent body of evidence that excessive cigarette smoking is one of the causative factors in lung cancer. As it turns out, tobacco executives were well aware of smoking's risks before the Surgeon General said anything. In fact, they'd already kicked off what would become a decades-long campaign to sideline the science on the issue. From conducting counterfeit science that they tried to pass off as legitimate research, to harassing scientists who spoke out with results they didn't agree with, to manufacturing uncertainty where it didn't exist. The fight against tobacco and what the U.S. Justice Department called their coordinated campaign of fraud and deceit may seem like old news, but it's actually still unfolding. 
As a result of a long-running lawsuit against the companies, a rule went into effect just last month requiring the country's major cigarette companies to begin posting corrective statements on their websites that address the effects of smoking and the fact that cigarettes are deliberately designed to be addicting. The fact is, the tobacco industry is not alone in attempting to sideline science. We see it all the time. Pharmaceutical companies trying to hide the danger of drugs like Vioxx or Avandia. Food companies and industry groups attempting to manufacture uncertainty about the impact of sugar on our health. And then there's the fossil fuel companies, who are not only adopting the tactics of the tobacco industry, but in some cases hiring the very same people and firms to try to cloud the debate on climate change and delay much needed climate action. For nearly three decades, many of the world's largest fossil fuel companies have knowingly worked to deceive the public about the realities and risks of climate change. They continue to do so today. That's why we're working to fight misrepresentations of climate science and provide sound, science-based evidence to set the record straight and ensure that, like the tobacco industry, these companies answer for their deception. You can join the fight at ucsusa.org slash stop deception. Thanks, Katie. Well, that's it for this episode of Dot Science. I hope you're as excited about the future of transportation as I am. Join the conversation at blog.ucsusa.org slash selfdrivingcars. And check out Dan's book, Three Revolutions, Steering Automated, Shared, and Electric Vehicles to a Better Future. Special thanks to Dr. Dan Sperling. Our correspondent was Abby Figueroa. This Week in Science History was brought to you by Katie Love. Editing by Omari Spears. Music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Thanks, and see you next time.